money burns a hole in my pocket. How I wish I had millions of dollars and nothing to do but just buy pretty presents for you. Good morning. Welcome to episode 337 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh in freezing New York, uh, and I am joined as always by Sam Miller in California, where it's probably probably moderate and mild. No countdown today. It's the first, <laughs> no. it's the first time you've ever not counted. Are you ready to speak? I am because uh, you introduced me so well. Hi, Ben. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. Good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, so since you were so upset yesterday that we didn't get to talk about all your transaction analyses, uh-huh. uh, I just thought we'd talk about your transaction analyses. Aha! Uh-huh. So that was your strategy all along. <laughs> you knew you knew that you picked Tuesday topics, so you didn't want to blow through all our material yesterday. So you thought you'd string it out over a couple days. First of all, that first of all that was not my plan. But second of all, everybody should know that one of my big pet peeves about Ben is all he does is complain about how he can't think of a topic. But if he <laughs> happens to wake up one day with two, he feels the need to force them both into a show, even if they're not timely. And like he will gladly he will gladly record an hour long show instead of just simply breaking one off and doing it the next day he also does the same thing with his writing he yes. will write four non four non-timely articles and publish them all on the same day and then complain that there's nothing for monday just gotta get it out there i can't you don't have to I you don't have to can't hog these brilliant ideas i have no, to myself ben, life once... is about no life is about budgeting ben it's about budgeting well, I'm, I'm an inexhaustible well of great ideas. So You're not, because you run out four <laughs> minutes later. You don't have, that's the whole point. You don't have a well. There's no well. You, you know what a well is? A well is where people keep their water. It's where you uh, go to get water regularly. <laughs> you don't have a well. You have like, uh, you have like, it's, it's like rain. It's just, it's a day of rain and you didn't irrigate. <laughs> I grew up in Manhattan. I just I go to the grocery store at 3 a.m. when I need something, so I don't have to hoard. Uh, okay, so we'll talk about all of the other moves that we haven't talked about yet. That's that's good. All right. So first of all, uh, how 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 uh, telling is it that everybody is signing so early? Uh, I don't know. It's well. Who was it uh, who did that research last year? Was it Brian McPherson who did the research about uh, how teams pay more, tend to pay more early in the offseason for free agents? I think. I think it. I think it might have been him. Yeah. I think it was Brian McPherson with the the Providence Journal. Um, and if that's the case, it doesn't seem like there's been a big bump so far. It's it's strange. I've seen people. Like there was an article, Louis Paulus wrote something at ESPN Insider about how there hasn't been a big spending bump. And then I've seen people marveling at how much guys are making. It seems like, I don't know whether it's because a certain person's team signed someone for a lot of money, they think that the whole market is up or, or what, but um, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of that. What is your What is your theory about why people are signing soon? 
Yeah, well, uh, not only do does it seem like big contracts tend to, and as Brian found, big contracts tend to clump early in the offseason um, and bargains at the end, but it's always been my theory um, that the the GMs that sign the early um, the early contracts are expecting the market to be hot. That it's basically trying to get ahead of a market that they think is going to be um, kind of uh, you know more inflationary than usual, or uh, in some cases a particular position is going to be um, there's going to be a run on a particular position, and so it makes sense after uh, the last you know few years of everybody kind of just sort of agreeing that all this TV money is going to, uh, you know, flood the market with, with dollars and that free agents are going to be getting ridiculous, uh, ridiculous raises. And, and, and I feel like that, the, the Hunter a lot Pence of GMs would and, be thinking that they... The Hunter Pence and Lincecum contracts, I feel like, right kind of before the opening of free agency maybe contributed to that sense that, that teams were going to be paying more for people. Yeah, definitely could have. And so uh, it could just be that everybody is expecting that and that this turns out to just be, you know, a, a dog that doesn't hunt and that, in fact, um, that they're kind of uh, getting ahead of a market that isn't going to explode um, because it, it does sort I mean, I'm, I'm sure some guys will get paid uh, going forward, but it seems to me that the more guys get knocked out early, um, the lower everybody else's salary is because it, it, it I don't know this but I think that um, that teams get their budgets get more rigid as the offseason goes on and as they get closer to the season and so even if there are just as many teams with just as many holes in their lineup uh, the closer you get to the season they're less likely to to pay because they kind of have fixed ideas about what their budget is going to be like um, and to me, it, it's not a given. It's not automatic that putting more money into the game is going to lead uh, to a proportional increase in salaries. It's uh, one half of the equation is certainly how much teams um, are able to pay for players, but the other half is how much supply there is of players, and the supply of players hasn't changed. So uh, it could be that um, that we've you know sort of reached the point where teams are spending you know as you know that they basically feel like they have enough money to pay you know for whatever they want but there's still the same number of players um there's still you know if shinsu chu uh, wants to get paid you know 400 million dollars or whatever and he says well there's a lot of teams with money that can afford that there's still also a ton of corner outfielders in the world in the universe who can provide some portion of that and they're competing with each other as well they're not just competing for owners dollars but they're competing against each other for that, those owners dollars so mm-hmm. i don't know if any of that made sense but that's kind of i, I think there's a possibility that uh, the inflation won't be as as drastic as people are expecting there is the scott boris strategy of having some marquee guy and waiting a while and i think he's commented to this effect that he feels that if he if he holds on to a marquee guy after all the other marquee guys sign then like when it gets to be about time for spring training or maybe it is spring training then whenever you know like if a team has someone get hurt and suddenly they have a hole his client is the only remaining attractive solution so mm-hmm. So it could work, I guess, for for some guys in certain cases to just hold out uh, and be like the last man standing. But um, 
but yeah, I think that is the the general trend. Uh, so were there any? Yeah, Boris usually you, Boris you. Boris usually says that around like February when he's got a player left, and he, I mean, you know, that yeah, I he he's also extremely good at getting those contracts that we've given up on, on being out there. So uh, he he both knows more than we do, and he's he's also very good at his job. He's maybe very good at making those um, those openings appear that weren't there. Uh, but nonetheless, he's also you know he's got every incentive to say it regardless. Mm-hmm. Usually when he's being asked that question. That is true. Uh, uh, all right. Yeah. So okay. So we've talked about the uh, the, the larger trend. Uh, Jose Molina, mm. um, fifty run receiver, <laughs> uh, best bargain in baseball. Um, this is no longer a novel thing, though. Why isn't he? If if I mean, using your logic mm-hmm. about uh, teams uh, teams telegraphing to us how much they think PEDs matter. By their willingness to continue playing, uh, paying PD uh, PD busts. Uh, why, if uh, you know, if, if Jose Molina is as good as you say he is, and you think he is, um, why is nobody willing to give him more than backup catcher money? Uh, yeah, I, I kind of wrote about this, and I think, um, I mean, he's just he's a really one-dimensional, limited player. There. Even if you acknowledge his one extraordinary skill that he's maybe the best in baseball at, he there are a lot of reasons that you can come up with legitimate reasons why you wouldn't want to sign him. He's he's going to be 39 next season. He's uh, a large a large gentleman. Uh, he's probably an injury risk. You can't you know you probably you can't pencil in Molina for you know 130 games or something. He's physically probably not able to do that so you can't really commit to him as a a full-time starter and he can't hit at all um and it's funny he he didn't hit at all last year but he hasn't really declined offensively it seems like like his his stats last year were terrible but they were exactly the same as his career stats he's just always been bad and he's still bad in the, the to the same degree that he's always been bad but uh there's that there's the fact that he's not a very good blocker he's uh his his caught stealing percentage has has fallen the last couple of years which might have more to do with the Rays staff than his own arm but clearly he hasn't gotten better at anything except perhaps framing so there are all of these you know warts right the idea of the player with warts that you sign him and maybe you get a good deal on him because there are all these things that make him unattractive and that are reasons for teams not to sign him. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the Rays are probably sick of watching him hit. <laughs> it's really, it's not fun watching him hit weak ground ball after weak ground ball. Um, but I think they're a team that recognizes his value and has to save money somewhere. And they figure that they can get some some bang for their buck with him. And uh, he'll probably do the same sort of platoon thing with with Jose Lobaton, or maybe they'll continue to to pursue Ryan Hannigan and just sort of, you know, play him half the time and and take the hit on offense for his defense. But you know, I, I think like if he were if he were 28, say, and you know, pitch FX had been discovered and all the framing studies had came out, had come out, then I feel like probably then he would get 
the bigger deal because someone would give him a, a starting job. At, at this point, I think the fact that he's signed through age 40 to be, uh, you know, close to a starting catcher at least is pretty impressive. Just the fact that he can get a guaranteed two-year contract despite not being able to hit at all and having all these other weaknesses, I think, is, you know, evidence that his framing has some has some value. I don't get it. I, no, I don't get it. I don't get what you're <laughs> saying. I I uh, I mean, you say he's got one skill, but like, so does Matt Garza. I mean, it's not like anybody looks at Matt Garza and says, oh, Matt Garza is a little bit of an extreme case, but it's not like anybody looks at a pitcher and goes, well, he's not a very good defender and he sure can't hit. We're, we're only going to give him $2 million. I mean, Molina's skill is, you know, somewhat equivalent to a pitcher's skill. He keeps runs off the board. And, and I mean, I understand that, that you're saying that the value is, is um, you know, chipped away at by all these other things. But we know what that value adds up to. And we know what, you know, 25 or 30 runs of framing adds up to. And it's a lot more than $2 million. It's a lot more than $2 million. If you think he's a, even if you think he's a 20-run framer, Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a, he's basically a replacement level player and everything else. He was yes. negative 0.2 warp this year, 0.4 the year before, you know, 0.9 the year before that. Regress and age and all that, and mm-hmm. you get roughly replacement level. Add 20 or 30, that's not a two million dollar player. So, like, why you? I think you're focusing a little bit on distribution of skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that if I were arguing it, you would push back on. <laughs> Possibly. I, I. Well, I mean, it's certainly possible that he's just underrated. I mean, I, I wouldn't have any problem arguing that, that teams just aren't valuing him properly, that, you know, they haven't done this the work that the Rays have done in a- analyzing him, or they haven't, you know, bought into the studies or, or whatever. There are probably some teams out there that, that don't believe it. And so that decreases demand. Uh, he reportedly had several teams interested in him, and, but primarily as a, a backup. And I, I don't. I think that's that's probably the thing. Is that I, I mean, maybe you know, maybe uh, Jose Molina doesn't doesn't know how good he is. I, I don't like you know. You can't you can't be a catcher who can't start, can't hit. And go out and argue that you deserve, you know, like Carlos Ruiz money or something. I don't think he just I mean, he can't I don't think a team would would trust him to play more than, say, half of their games. And how much money are you going to to commit to a guy who plays half of your games? Because then you have to have some other guy play half of your games. And maybe that guy is is a replacement level catcher. Um but there's got to be two teams out there that believe these numbers. If I mean, if these numbers are valid at all, there's got to be two of the 30 teams that believe in it, right? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they in a bidding war for Molina? I mean, $2 million is so cheap. Why aren't they in a bidding war for him if, if they believe in it? Because uh... the incentives are... The incentives are for them to sign Molina for anything less than, you know, $15 million a year. Mm-hmm. If yeah. that's true. Yeah, um... I don't know. It's. I mean, it's possible that he didn't go to the highest bidder. I, I know they wrote a Mark Topman, Tar, Topkin for the the Tampa Bay Times wrote about how much he likes playing there. He likes playing for Joe Madden. He likes playing for a contending team. He likes playing close to Puerto Rico. 
maybe he's in some way grateful to the organization for being the first one ever to, you know, give him as much playing time as they have. It's so it's possible that he did pass up money somewhere else. We don't really know, but uh, I don't know. I think there there probably should be a bit more demand for him. He probably should be making more money. It's a it's a weak weak market for catchers. Are you um, surprised that framing doesn't decline with age? Uh, I'm not. Sh- I, I'm not surprised that it declines less than other skills. I'm maybe maybe surprised about how gradual the decline seems to be. It's like almost imperceptible, um, and Molina actually seems to have gotten better at it. But I don't know. When when you think about it, it's not shocking to me that that it's not as much tied to, you know, your reaction time or something. Like, you can maybe anticipate where pitches are going to be and how they're going to move better as you get older and just have the experience to draw upon. And perhaps your your technique improves and you learn what kind of, you know, glove positions and movements tend to get calls and, and don't. Um, I mean, beyond a certain point, I guess you just wouldn't be able to catch the ball anymore. But doesn't doesn't shock me that you know you could be good at it into your your late 30s or so whereas a skill like hitting declines much more steeply i might be wrong about this but i believe that uh putting in golf uh has a pretty steep decline yeah that's as true, you get older mm-hmm. and there's no physical reason why that would be the case i mean unless mm-hmm. it's something physical like you know eyesight related or something like that right. but i mean putting seems like the sort of thing that you would expect to age well and that you would you know expect that there'd be a narrative around like old guys getting better as they learn how to putt he used to be a driver but now he's a golfer right mm-hmm. and and so i could sort of see why the framing thing would seem like it would be uh you know something of a market inefficiency because you can sign guys to age well um but it also wouldn't surprise me if that turned out to be like you know something close to a myth or not mm. not replicatable it'll be interesting to see yeah that's possible anyway the the interesting thing about Molina to me is just his his overall career trajectory it's just really really strange like I looked up it for a, a lineup card we did at BP a couple weeks ago how often someone gets their their career high plate appearance total at age 38 or later which is what he did last year and it's happened this was the fourth time it's happened in the last 50 years. He's, you know, he's been a, he was a backup for well over a decade. No one thought he was worth starting. Uh, and then, you know, Mike Fast's study comes out at BP and two months later, a team gives him a chance to start, a, you know, a, a smart contending team gives him a chance to start when he's 36. It's just, it's crazy. Like clearly there's, there's something going on there. So I don't know why it hasn't been even more lucrative for him um but you know on the other hand if not for that he'd probably be out of baseball by now yeah well certainly right well i don't know yeah probably i don't know there's a a lot of catch positions there's some really bad catchers out there should we talk about a really good catcher who signed I was going to ask you, you get one more. I'm not giving you both, but uh. you can either talk about McCann or Joe Smith. It's your choice. Who do you want to talk about for the next four and a half minutes? <laughs> I'm guessing McCann would be of more interest to our listeners. I, I, I am curious about Joe Smith only because you know more about the Angels than I do. And I wrote about how, 
you know, Joe Smith is really good, and he's gotten much this better. This is a trick. You're tricking, yes, this is a you're trick. You're talking yeah. about Joe Smith <laughs> while explaining why yes. you're choosing the can. Yes. Uh, so Smith, uh, he started out as, you know, a, a situational guy, a righty who lefties destroyed, and then he became less of a sinker baller, more of a, a four-seam fastball pitcher, and now he's, for the last three years, been equally effective against righties and lefties. Uh, he's been durable. He's a he's a good reliever. He's one of one of the more consistent non closers in baseball. Uh, but the and the, the the average annual value he got, which is a little you know three and a, or five and a quarter million, is not crazy. There are like twenty relievers who made that much last year. But Jerry Depoto has been you know he said the sort of sabermetric standard party line about how it's so hard to build a bullpen and relievers are inconsistent from year to year and he called it Russian roulette when you're paying free agents to be the back of your bullpen so uh why do you think that he signed Joe Smith now um and kind of went away from that principle yeah no, I mean not knowing anything actually mm-hmm. about it my guess is that it was um the result of uh heavy input by somebody above him or below him mm-hmm. would be my guess. I mean, Smith is, uh, you know, I don't know, to some degree, uh, Smith, I don't know, Smith is kind of his sort of reliever, his type of reliever, um, in that, you know, Smith is not a classic, you know, 97 mile an hour with a hard slider who's going to get paid to, you know, be a closer someday. So the average annual value might qualify him as the bargain reliever that he goes for, Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, everybody he goes for is kind of a bargain to some degree, and I don't know. You maybe you can argue that Smith has a little bit of that in him, but um, I mean, my guess is that Depoto almost probably almost got fired, or at least mm-hmm. I don't know if he almost got fired, but he, at least it. I'm sure it was in his head for the last few months of the season, mm-hmm. and uh, at this point, without being there, we don't really know what concessions he had to make to kind of keep the peace in that front office or uh you know Artie Marino is 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 always uh, a threat to uh, have a strong opinion about uh which direction the team should be going um and I wondered actually I wondered I, I'm thinking about this actually a little bit more from um the, the Peter Borges deal because uh, uh DePoto didn't seem to be interested in trading Borges until now um and Borges seems like the sort of guy that DePoto would like and that he would realize is probably uh, somewhat undervalued um, by the larger market. And so it was sort of odd to see him trade Borges for freeze, and it made me think that it might just be um, a, um, you know, kind of a realistic look at the manager and sort of knowing, um, you know, that, that he gets to you know, he gets to pick players, but Sosha's going to use them. And if you don't think that Sosha's going to use them in exactly the way that, that you are planning, that's kind of an, a suboptimal use of your resources. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just thought that maybe in both cases it was sort of a realization of uh, trying to put a team on the field that um, Sosha would work best with mm-hmm. uh, instead of maybe imposing his own vision of what type of players Sosha would work best with. I don't know. Yes. Just spe- Just speculating. Yeah, I, I had the same speculation about feeling pressure to, to win now and, and to not have a completely terrible bullpen again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I included a quote that he that he said in April of last year where he uh, he said that he likes to build a bullpen with different looks. Uh, 
he said you want to try to create as much diversity as you can diversity with you know in out pitches velocities arm angles and smith is of course a, a sidearm guy who's dropped down even lower over time that is kind of an interesting idea and i yeah i wonder like how would you even test that i wonder whether he's basing that on you know some study some empirical thing that they've done or whether it's just sort of a theory that it seems like it would be a difficult thing to to test whether there's any advantage to that i don't think you have to necessarily show that there's a sequential advantage um which might be what you're envisioning the idea that you know like a pitcher coming in after another pitcher or you know from game to game might have some advantage i'm thinking of it more like we hear that teams um are sort of moving toward the idea of um of I don't know, clustering types of pitchers together or types of hitters together. So instead of saying this batter is four for nine in his career against the starting pitcher and letting that dictate the manager's decision in any way, you would basically cluster pitchers so that you would say uh, this guy is, uh, you know, a 217 on base percentage against the cohort of pitchers who are most like this guy and sort of trying to, to tease out what sorts of skills uh, different batters and different pitchers have, and how to how to use the matchups to your advantage. And the more specifically you could um, you could do that, and the more specifically um, you could target it, um, you know, the 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 better your uh, ability to to squeeze every last um, you know gram of talent out of each guy, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a bullpen that gives you seven different cohorts that represents seven different cohorts, and your manager is on board with this and has looked at it and knows what you're doing. Um, it might just be that he's able to, to sort of micro-target his relievers um, better during games instead of simply just breaking them into lefty-righty closer. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, and I didn't have that much to, to say about McCann really anyway. I, I, I think it's, uh, it's what I expected him to get. It's the contract I, I pretty much would have projected him to get. I think he'll... He'll be worth it. I think it's a, a big upgrade for the Yankees because only the, the Blue Jays, the White Sox, and the Marlins had catchers who hit worse last year than, than the Yankees' collection of Stewart and Romine and Cervelli and Murphy. Um, I, I think he'll be a good fit for Yankee Stadium. I think if he does have to move toward, you know, to first or DH toward the end of, of the contract, the Yankees will have openings at those positions by that time. Uh, but I am not convinced that he'll have to move because he is also a, a very good framing catcher. And we know from, from public comments that they've made and some of the catchers that they've signed that the Yankees are aware of that and, and value that. Um, so I'm thinking that they might be willing to, to live with him as a catcher into his mid-30s as long as he continues to, to do that skill. And... Uh, I would expect them to make more moves to to supplement this addition and possibly trade some of their young catching depth at some point because they now have, you know, Gary Sanchez and Austin Romine and J.R. Murphy and guys who are pretty much, you know, at least a couple guys who are major league ready just about and and would be of interest to other teams. So uh, I, I like the move. thought it was a, a big upgrade. Just out of curiosity, as far as sort of Yankees criminology goes, does this signing of McCann this early in the offseason for the specific terms that he has um, make you think they are 
more likely to sign lots of guys or less likely to sign lots of guys? Does it tell you anything about the Yankees' re, uh, finances, I guess? Uh, I think more likely. I, you know, I don't know if it... I know that they are trying to get things done without waiting around for Cano, and they're trying to impose some sort of deadline on Cano. And, I mean, they do... If, if A-Rod doesn't play next year and... Certainly, he's going to be suspended for part of the year, at least. They they have a decent amount of payroll room to sign some guys. I, I forget what the exact number is, but I would guess if they made this commitment, it's it's sort of a you know it's a move that you you expect McCann to to be worth that money at at the early end of the contract, and I would assume that they plan to to build a contending team you know, around him in part. I don't think they're going to just sign McCann and stop because I don't think they are a playoff team if they sign McCann and stop or even if they sign McCann and Cano and stop. So um, I, I think there's probably more coming. Okay, no, emails. Yeah, sure. are we doing an email show tomorrow? Yeah, sure. Okay, all right, so let's do an email show tomorrow. Uh, so we need some material then. So send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. By the way, one of the questions that we talked about in last week's email show, the, the Matt Trueblood question about switching corner outfielders, depending on the batter, uh, Russell Carlton wrote a nice article about that that was up at PP on Monday called The Corner Outfield Inefficiency. So you should go read that if you want to uh, see the actual numbers in the math as opposed to us just saying things off the top of our heads. Yeah, that was great. Yep. All right. Uh, we'll be back with the email show tomorrow.